every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. Welcome to a brand new month. It's Wednesday, the 1st of November, and this is Money Talk. A warm welcome from me, Peter Lewis. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the Bank of Japan said yesterday at the end of its regular policy meeting that it would allow yields on the 10-year Japanese government bond to rise above 1%, revising its yield curve controls for the second time in three months. In a statement, the BOJ said the target level of the 10-year JGB yield will be held at 0%, but the upper bound of a 1% cap will be regarded as a reference, noting that strictly capping long-term interest rates could entail large side effects. The BOJ kept its policy rate at minus 0.1%, the world's only negative interest rate. China's manufacturing sector slipped back into contraction territory in October. The official manufacturing PMI unexpectedly fell to 49.5 in October from 50.2 in September, missing economists' forecasts and highlighting that the economic recovery in China remains fragile. China's non-manufacturing sector also performed worse than expected. The official non-manufacturing PMI fell unexpectedly to 50.6 in October from 51.7 a month earlier, missing analysts' estimates. It was the 10th straight month of expansion in the service sector, but the softest in that 10-month period. Hong Kong's economy grew less than expected in the three months to September, hurt by China's slowdown and US interest rate hikes. Hong Kong's economy expanded 4.1% year-on-year in the third quarter, accelerating from a 1.5% rise in the previous period, but sharply below economists' forecasts of 5.2%. It was, though, the strongest economic growth since the fourth quarter of 2021. On today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Feil, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Nitin Dialdis, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. And with a view from Japan, it's Nick Smith, Japan Strategist at CLSA. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'm also on Facebook, Peter Lewis Money Talk is the page, and on X, I'm at Money Talk R3. Stocks in the US climbed higher on the last day of October as investors continue to weigh fresh corporate results and await the Fed's decision due tomorrow morning. The three major indices all notched their third consecutive negative month. The S&P 500 climbed 0.7% yesterday to 4,194, but for the month it lost 2.2%. The Dow advanced 124 points, or 0.4% to 33,053. For October overall, it was down 1.4%, and that marks the first three-month losing streak for both the Dow and the S&P 500 since March 2020. The Nasdaq Composite added half a percent to 12,851. The Nasdaq fell 2.8% on the month, also its third straight monthly loss in a row. Small caps tumbled over 7% in October, with the Russell 2000 index down for the third month in a row and the worst monthly loss since September 2022. Utilities were the only sector to end October in the green, while energy and consumer discretionary were the biggest losers. The yield on the US 10-year Treasury notes rose three basis points to 4.92% after earlier hitting 4.8%. That was the lowest in two weeks after the US government announced a reduced borrowing requirement. 10-year yields have added 34 basis points since the start of October, and at one point last week hit a 16-year high of 5.02%. 
Brent crude oil settled 1.5% lower at $85.02 a barrel for a monthly loss of almost 11%. That's its worst month since May. Spot Gold notched its best monthly gain since November 2022 as the Israel-Hamas war and high interest rates have pushed investors to seek out safe havens. Gold fell 0.6% Tuesday but was up 7.3% over the month at $1,983 an ounce, having risen at one stage above $2,000 and trading as high as $2,009 earlier in the month. The US dollar index ended October with a half a percent gain. That's the third straight monthly gain. On Tuesday, the biggest buying activity was against the yen, which lost more than one and a half percent to trade above 151 after the BOJ disappointed markets with only a small tweak in its yield curve control policy. The Chinese yuan was around 0.2% weaker over the month at 7.31.5 renminbi to the dollar. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was off 0.1% at 3,019, ending a five-day winning run, and that index fell 2.9% in October. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index tumbled 294 points, or 1.7%, to an almost one-year low of 17,112. The Hang Seng has dropped 3.9% last month. That's its third straight monthly loss. Looks like it's going to fall a little bit further at the open this morning. Futures markets pointing to a decline of about 15 points. That's 0.1%. Index should open just below 17,100. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Halfway through the week, time to welcome our guests. We have with us Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. Morning, Enzio. Good morning to you, Peter. And also with us, Nitin Dialdis, who's Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. Nice to see you again, Nitin. Good morning, Peter. Nice to see you too. The Bank of Japan said yesterday at the end of its regular policy meeting it's going to allow yields on the 10-year Japanese government bond to rise above 1%, revising its famous yield curve controls for the second time in three months. In a statement, the BOJ said the target level of the 10-year JGB yield will be held at 0%, but the upper bound of a 1% cap will be regarded as a reference, noting that strictly capping long-term interest rates could entail large side effects. In July, the Bank of Japan effectively widened its yield target band on the 10-year by 50 basis points to 1% on either side. And the BOJ kept its policy rate at minus 0.1%, the world's only negative interest rate. Enzio, I have to say, it appears to me the Bank of Japan's in a bit of a mess, but I'm interested in thinking, hearing what you think. Well, when I was covering Japan many, many decades ago, I was told it, always, it takes time, Enzio-san, and that's exactly what's happening now. The Japanese haven't sort of changed that bit of software at all. I think they kind of want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to keep a yen weak by keeping that policy rate at minus 0.1%. Really, I think to promote imported inflation, I don't think it's going to help exports a whole lot from a highly industrialized country. My research has shown that doesn't really do a whole lot, but certainly to promote imported inflation, thus increase domestic wages, and thus push up domestic consumption. So I think that's kind of the game plan. But um, this waffling between that and then the not the, the, the 1% bond yield, they don't want the yen too weak because, of course, with the dollar differential, they don't, if it gets too weak, then inflation gets too high. So they're on a little bit of a tightrope and they're, too, they're, they're actually not walking the tightrope yet. They're still sort of sticking at the, at the bark of the tree. Do they want imported inflation? That's 
the worst type of inflation for them, isn't it, really? Particularly given that wages, real wages, are, are negative. They're not going up. So people are complaining more and more that prices are going up, but not their wages. Well, this could be part of the, the, the cockeyed economic policy that I think they, they may be following. Um, I, th I think they may still be stuck in 12th century thinking that a weekend helps exports, which I just have shown really through my, my empirical research, it just doesn't work. So, Nitin, what, what do you think about this? I mean, it's, the Bank of Japan is the only central bank now with negative interest rates. It seems sort of rather inappropriate, doesn't it, for given where the global economy is and where the Japanese economy is? It, completely inappropriate. I mean, you've got inflation at 2.8% and you're still showing negative interest rates. Um, what can I say? The, I think the reality is, from their point of view, it's always been the borrowing currency. Everyone borrows in yen because of the low interest rate. And I think that's something they're scared of losing because all of a sudden the demand for people trying to get yen and borrow in yen can diminish if they start raising rates. And I think that's the general feeling that they've got, whereas at least they've placed some sort of importance in their foreign currency. I think also, it's, um, while it may not help exports, it's certainly helping tourism. Mm. And I think you know, a lot of people are going over to Japan because it's super cheap now, um, especially around Asia. So I think from that point of view, there is Good some point, sort of benefit yeah. And I think that is something that they're quite happy to continue. I think they're looking for someone else to do something about the yen, aren't they? It's sort of like rather at odds with what the Japanese government wants, with, with the yen just sliding more and more um, against the dollar. But I presume they're, they're hoping that maybe the government will intervene and support it and, and save them. Yeah, but I, I, I just don't see it happening because, as I said, at the moment, it's it's a steady decline. Mm. It's, it's going to get worse, isn't it, it? I mean, look, I think there are probably a lot of people who were long the yen at 150 who are now going to have to long cover. So mm. getting that move down to, say, 155, 156 <laughs> is not going to be until, you know, unheard of. By which time the Bank of Japan has intervened, presumably. Well, as it did, as it just did, as your, your notes... 150, 159, and then it, it closed to a point which the Bank of Japan intervened. Yeah. I mean, they've done minor interventions, I think, over, over this year, haven't they? You mm -hmm. know, they've done a little bit of buying when it's got close to 150, and this is the first time they haven't kind of done a, you know, intervened a little bit at that level. So maybe they're prepared to see it go down to 155, maybe even 160. But I'm, I don't think there's going to be mass intervention from, from the Bank of Japan. I just think at the moment they're quite happy to let it slide and just see where it goes. So does the yield curve control policy still exist? I can't see anywhere in what the Bank of Japan said what its target is now. It said, you know, 1% is just a reference. It didn't say anywhere, is there a target at which it would now intervene and, and stop yields rising anymore? Um, I mean, if not, then there's no yield curve control policy, is there? Well, maybe you take advantage of the weekend and go, we all go to Japan a bit more. <laughs> this is so Japanese that you just, they obfuscate like crazy Mm. So I think this is part of the culture. It's a cultural thing, I think. They just don't... Um, maybe it's the worst on a two-handed economist, so like a ten-headed hydra. So <laughs> um, I think that that, that that very diffuse, obtuse yield curve policy is going to remain in place. I don't think, as, as Nitin and, and I think we're agreeing, they don't want the yen to go down to, say, 170 or 180, but um, they certainly aren't making it easy for traders to read the TVs, I would, I would have thought. But the Bank of Japan's in a hole then, isn't it? Because it's now moved, it's changed its policy, but the yen is still falling. So it's, it's now got the worst of all worlds in that either it's going to make a, a concrete decision now about to completely abandon this yield curve control policy, um, or it's going to see the, the yen dive, uh, what, to another 32-year low. 
Well, then that's again why we're all going to go to Japan on the back of Nintendo's weekend. <laughs> this is so cultural that I think they, 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 they don't really want to take any decisive action. It just doesn't work. But isn't the Bank of Japan here losing credibility? I mean, look at its inflation forecast. It was 1.9%, and no one believed that. And now it's saying it's 2.8%. It's like up, you know, um, almost 1% in just three months. It's not very credible, is it? And as NZO just pointed out, you're going to get more imported inflation. So that level's going to stay relatively high. Um, yep. I, I think this is massive. I don't know. You're right. I don't get anything what the Bank of Japan's doing. I also trying to figure this out from a consump- you know consumption basis, where a lot of the most Japanese are savers. They're not actually like the states where they're all you know in debt. Mm. Surely having an interest rate lifted, that's going to provide them with some return on mm. their cash. Mm. That's that's you know increased income that you can put in going to the economy. So that's going to help the consumers. But there's no. I think they've just been safe set on that zero percent policy uh, since 1990. That they just don't know, or they're scared. Maybe there's a fear there that yeah. they don't know what's going to happen if they go against that. And mm. um, I, I think I, that's what they're being driven by: is fear of what of the unknown. Of changing, yes, yeah, it's just thirty-three years. But also income insecurity. I think yeah. it's just they. they, they it's a, we all know that it's aging society. So so pensions, job, in, rising inflation, fixed pensions, rising job, rising income insecurity. Maybe I better save a bit more. This is Watanabe. Yeah. But you have to laugh when they say that they, as they raise their core, their core inflation target, this is going to be accompanied by a virtuous circle of rising prices and wages, they said. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not happened so far, has it? Well, there's a big circle in their flag also, isn't there? What does this mean for, for markets? Does it have ramifications for international bond markets? Because Japanese investors, they own trillions of dollars of, of overseas debts, don't they? Because they've been looking for higher yields elsewhere uh, for, for a long, long time. It, what are the implications for, uh, for the bond markets? I think they'll just keep on buying the US bonds. I think that they, I completely they, they, agree. They can't, I, I th- I think, it's, yeah. it's a bit of a no-brainer because the yields are five, and it's, it's, it's at, at the outside one on the Japanese yen is falling so not that the dollar isn't um but i th- i think that that's that's the major implication they very well could take up some of the slack of the of the chinese getting rid of some of their government bonds mm. yeah i completely agree i think um where where else are you going to look you've got a strengthening currency i mean the strongest currency in the world at the moment plus you're getting five five point two five percent yields Absolutely. so um, you know, it's a no-brainer if, if you're a Japanese. Yeah, so there's still no competition, really. You've just got to go to the U.S. Treasury markets. Yeah, completely. Yes. Mm. So what what about the Fed, then? We've got the Fed meeting right now. It's going to give its decision in the early hours of tomorrow morning, about, um, about 2 a.m. Most people are expecting the Fed to keep rates um, unchanged. The key is what it says about going forward, isn't it? And any indication about how long... Um, the, uh, the the rates are going to remain high. I still get the feeling that short-dated yields are out of sync with what the Fed is saying and have probably got to go up more because uh, the Fed is making it quite clear that these rates are going to stay here for quite a period of time. Yeah, I, I, look, I, th- I think the Fed have been pretty clear. I think the markets have been the ones that have been hoping against mm, what the Fed yes. have been saying. So the Fed have, been, have said it for months that rates are going to stay higher for longer. They're not going to lower rates too quickly. Mm. Um, I think where people were a bit uncertain was whether there's going to be another rate rise. I think now that's pretty clear there's not going to be another rate rise. 
But we just stay at these levels now. I mean, I think until Q3, Q4 next year at the best. And who knows, maybe even longer. I mean, it could just be that the economy settled down, people get into a nice little pattern, and people are quite happy with where, where things are. I mean, we're just back to where we were at the beginning of the millennium. It's not like, you know, we're completely out of whack and going into the 1970s, 1980s type of interest rates. So, um, yeah, I think from the Fed point of view, they've been clear. They know, they've been saying that throughout. And I don't think there's going to be any change in their stance and what they say. Unless, of course, there's some big mix-up with the oil price, the Straits of Hormuz yeah. and all that. We all know that. Um, and that's what exactly what happened back when the oil shock came, was that some one country just sort of withdrew all the oil and, and off, the, off the price went. But I also would add to what Nitin is saying, that you've got the, the structural inflation, which I've always been rattled on about, which is the su- supply side of the equation, the weather driving up food prices, people not really wanting to work, driving, creating tight labor markets. Then you've got the geopolitical problems running around. So I think that that's also going to keep what I call table mountain versus the Matterhorn. What I mean by that is that yeah. the interest rates stay high. That's you pill Bank of England versus the Matterhorn. That maybe ends you on file. Um, in other words, that rates go up and then come straight back on. I'm not buying that, even in an election year of the U.S. next year. I think a lot. Of, I think a lot of the problem, I'll say, is the the industry kind of wants interest rates to come back down because again, they've gotten used to that, mm-hmm. and they're like, we're, we're comfortable with low interest rates, you know, zero or one percent interest rates. We're not very comfortable with five percent interest rates. Yes. So they're kind of wishing it to come down. But as I said, the Fed's been very clear. No, that's where it is. So I think the market, the industry, has to just. And I think that's beginning to bite a little bit. Um, I believe that most U.S. mortgages are still fixed rate. Mm, They are. What I understand. But the... uh, seemingly, according to the FT, the property sector confidence has waned quite a bit. The waning home builders' confidence, the plunge in existing home sales, which have fallen back to levels seen back in 2010. Mm, and and consumer confidence, in, that's falling as well. Absolutely. Then the skid in new mortgage applications back to where they were in 1995. I mean, this is well, I mean, big you've got, stuff. Yeah, you've got 30-year mortgages now over 8%. Yeah. So if you're taking a new loan, You've, you know, your interest rate is going to be extremely high. Yes. And if you've got a current home and you're trying to upgrade and your current loan rate is at 3%. That's it. And you're going up to 8 you're not going to take that 5% hit. So you've got a, you're losing a lot of that market, the upgraded market. Do we know anybody here when the US, when the fixed rate mortgages mature? Is there, is, has anybody seen a, a figure when, when the, they sort of bunch and start mm-hmm. going back to, to floating? I, I suspect because they're 30-year mortgages. Ah, so, so yeah. you know, they're long-dated mortgages. So by, hopefully by the time your mortgage matures, you've paid off the uh, paid off the house and, and you own it so I think yes. that's the idea that, I think that's yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but what, does the Fed need to react to the hard data if you look at core PCE on a monthly mm. basis is a four-month high third quarter GDP 4.9 percent there's still strength there isn't there and the consumer's still going gangbusters at the moment yeah I mean I think it, the data's been very very mixed though um, and I think that's the problem is you've got yeah, high GDP, you talk about the PCE, but then you look at the flip side, the CPI is coming down a bit, um, retail sales has been, you know, sliding a little bit. So it, it's kind of very, very mixed. And I think, you know, even if you look at some of the corporate earnings, whilst they've been generally okay, the positivity of the corporate earnings hasn't been as high as it traditionally is. So mm-hmm. normally you get about, say, 80, 83% or 84% that beat estimates. We're down in the 70s now. 
Um, so I think there's a number of spots out there where you can see that there is weakness um, coming through. And I th therefore, I think from the Fed's point of view, it is the right time to pause. And it's just to see how this all plays through. Part of, the, you know, part of inflation could be the oil prices, while they're getting close to $100, they're now back at like 87 88 mm. um, So there's a number, as I said, I think for them, it's like, let's just take a pause. Let's just see how it goes for the rest of the year. So let all these interest rate hikes filter through into the economy in a real way. And then um, they'll, we'll see how they go next year. A pause is probably the safest option anyway, isn't it, for, yeah. for, for the Fed? For if, sure. it, if it raised rates now, uh, it will come under oh. a lot of criticism oh, yeah, for, sure. for tanking the economy or, or potentially tanking the economy. I just wanted to add for some sure. little twist to this, that there's a big difference, from my thinking at least, between raising the price of money and reducing the quantity of money. It uh -huh. sounds a bit sort of... Well, this is where the monetarists follow, follow <laughs> isn't it? They're yes. looking at M2, which is yeah. declining rapidly since the beginning yeah. of the year. But I think that with the quantitative, when did the quantitative tightening really start? I, th I thought it was at the start of this year. The yeah, I think it was about a year ago. Yeah, it was towards the end of last year. So yeah. That's, yeah. That's, okay. Yeah. So with the quantitative tightening, if, if they are then giving bonds and getting money back, that's, of course, a withdrawal of M2. Then you've got more issuance of bonds. Absolutely. And so you're giving yeah. more bonds into the market, getting more money out of the market. So I think the economic time is going to, in my terms of my economic clock, is going to go from an excess supply of money to an excess demand for money even more. And mm. That's got to, at some point, hit into an excess supply of goods. And that then, what Nitin was alluding to has to then drive down earnings growth and especially sky high valuations i think the magnificent seven become the modest seven after about a year's time <laughs> not even that modest i, mean, <laughs> I suspect but uh, I, yeah. I haven't got the data of hand but i think m2 has turned negative the money yes. supply has turned yeah. negative and it's dropped obviously. the most yes. in about 30 years yes. I, I think yes. so we're talking yeah, about a very dramatic fall the fed has gone from one extreme to another yeah. from pumping money into the system and effectively causing inflation and now withdrawing it so rapidly uh, that the money supply is plunging and, and it would well the monetarists will say that threatens to shove the, uh, the economy into recession and that then of course then underlines what we're I think all yeah. agreeing on that they just table mountain time they just sort of stay on hold for and just see how all of this pans out because again if the, as we all know if the geopolitical stuff worsens well then that's a new set of equations to work through isn't it mm. okay well look we've talked about Japan we've talked about the US let's talk about China and Hong Kong uh, China's manufacturing sector slipped back into contraction territory in October. The official National Bureau of Statistics manufacturing PMI, that fell to 49.5, so that's below the 50 level that separates expansion from contraction. It was 50.2 in September, and economists expected it uh, to remain there. On the services side, that grew at a 10-month low. The official non-manufacturing PMI fell to 50.6 in October, so barely uh, sort of growing. Um, we got all excited, didn't we, about the GDP data? We thought maybe the Chinese economy has turned a corner. Then this comes along. That sort of sends us a different story, doesn't it? I, um, it depends on how you def define we. Don't include me. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I then. I was say, how many people believe the GDP figure anyway? <laughs> well, exactly. It's all. I mean, they've they, they've cut the unemployment numbers. You don't even know what they are anymore. But I think the key issue with China is not really the economics. It's the politics, the centralizing power of the party, and that's. I think that's mm. and this whole sort of extirpating. The private sector, in other words, banning the private sector, telling the private sector, you will do what I want. And so the private sector can't do what it's good at, which is creating 80% of all jobs. And I think that until that Gordian knot is cut, 
the centralization of the of the power of the party, I don't think there's much hope for the Chinese economy, frankly. I don't see that Gordy not being cut as long as she remains in power. I think that's that's his ideology. He's, he's perfectly entitled to his view, and to, I mean he is the boss. Um, I'm just saying as an economist that I think that's going to knock the private sector out of out of the the job creation arena. I agree. I think the problem is they take one step forward and two steps back mm. each time, as opposed to the other way around. And by that, I mean, you know, where was it, like two months ago when they came up with those 200 policy measures and it was focusing mm. on private economy and getting the private companies back and all this. Mm. But since then, all they've been doing is putting more and more restrictions in place for private companies. Mm. So it doesn't marry up. And it's like, yeah, OK, we're going to tell you this is what we want, but you can only do it, as NZO just said, under our guys mm. and you can't build creativity out of that you can't no, build exactly, a new industry yeah. out of that you can't get jobs out of that because everyone's just doing the same thing and it it just doesn't work mm. um so i think you know even now i mean i was reading today that in the finance industry uh, uh, within the finance industry they're putting in more controls on the one hand, they're saying Hong Kong's got to be... Restricting IPOs. Well, exactly. But on the one hand, they're saying Hong Kong's got to be the International Finance Centre. But yet, on the other, we've got to have these controls, this thing, and it just doesn't, it just doesn't marry up. No, no. If, if I'm from overseas and I've got all these markets to choose from, whether it's London, Singapore, Tokyo, you know, Frankfurt, yeah. New York, yeah. and I've got this one place which claims they want to be the International Finance Centre, but I'm going to be subjected to a whole bunch of rules that all the others don't. What do you think, where do you think I'm going to choose? Mm. Certainly not that one. I'll choose yeah. anywhere else but that. Mm. And I don't think that... Sad but true. Yeah, yeah. but he just yeah. doesn't understand it. And that's being replicated in the private sector, so you can't create jobs. And more importantly, from an image point of view, from people wanting to go into the country and create new industries or cr bring in fresh money, Nobody has any faith or trust to go in there. So where are you going to get this growth from? And that's where the, yeah. the foreign direct investment figures have gone yeah. completely apart. It's, it's completely dead. And if you're then going to be detained and have yeah. the pleasure of, of spending your holidays in China, well, that's not no fun either. There doesn't seem to be any role for the market anymore no. in this new system, is there? I don't know what that's you it. call this new system. It's sort of a mixture of communist, Marxist type of ideology. But there doesn't seem to be a role for the but market in terms of... it's party-driven. It's not... It's not, um, it's not government-driven. I think that's mm. a very important point yeah. because I think that she can exercise more control over the party than over the government because mm. just so, it's such a bloated bureaucracy. Because you would like the market to decide how resources are allocated to which totally. sectors. The market's probably better at deciding which company should IPO, whereas 100%. at the moment it seems the regulators now in Shanghai are deciding which companies meet their political requirements to, you know, to, to provide growth to certain sectors. So that's not really letting the market decide should your company list at what price, what its valuation is. But we're getting that here in Hong Kong with Happy Hong Kong and Night Vibes <laughs> Hong Kong as, as, as our sort of idea of a planned planned. Planned, but it's called a planned capitalism. Well, isn't the worst example of the planned capitalism the northern metropolis? It's I think awful. so, or Lantau uh, tomorrow, uh, yeah. I mean, that whole thing is just a joke. Lantau tomorrow. We're getting people leaving Hong Kong in their droves. We've got mass supply out there of property, but yet the government's keeping the property prices inflated because, hell, we're not going to sell price below, we're not going to sell land below a certain price. Mm. I mean, where else in the world are they going to do that? I mean, like, how does this... Mm defy logic we're trying to help the people of hong kong but we're putting property land prices it's all money yeah. it's all money isn't it you're not really helping the people of hong kong are you you're, no. you're helping your developer friends to ensure that mm. they you know continue to make their money and it's also what i price. call oil and water i think it's it's a global phenomenon that the government whether it's the u.s government donald trump joe biden 
or Hong Kong or China, it's the government sits in its little boxes upstairs and doesn't have anything to do with us plebeians and just conjures up policies that like nightlife Hong Kong, night vibes Hong Kong, and thinks that's going to really sort of do the trick. It's just nonsense. They're, they're sort of drops in the ocean, really, aren't they, for what is a, yeah. supposedly a big international city that, you well, know, having a stall on the, on the yeah. harbour front, maybe it's, it's nice, but this is not going to transform the economy, presumably. No. They can't speak English anyway, so how could the, it be the, sad, the, the saddest thing about all of this is Hong Kong is actually a great city. Yes. And it's, it's so easy to sell itself. You don't have to sell it in a certain way. Just let people get on with it. And I think, you know, if people got on with it, Hong Kong sells itself. The problem is there's too much intervention. And, you know, a senior government advisor last week was talking about the education system and saying you're putting too much onto the national security now and it's driving people away. Mm. And yet you've got John Lee saying, no, it's not. Um, well, businesses are saying they are leaving, Yeah, exactly. They, so. Just look at the numbers. Look at the advisor, yeah. what the advisor is saying. Don't, you know, just because you don't think it is, look at the reality of it. And it is driving people away. And here's, this, you know, here's where it all starts. Is you, you keep saying you want to bring international people into Hong Kong. Yeah. How are you going to bring international people to Hong Kong if you keep inflated property prices, if you're messing around with the education system, if you're constantly changing the rules? It, you know, like, again, you're going down the China side of, you know what, today I don't like this, tomorrow I'm going to... Whereas previously, it's just been... We used to have a laissez-faire economy, didn't we? Exactly, let it go. We had a rigged economy. Minimum intervention, minimum taxation, you know, minimum government rules and regulations, and businesses would come and do business where they could, and they would decide what are the right sectors. They don't need to be told you have to do it on the northern border with Shenzhen in the innovation and technology sector. Exactly. The last one went to Richard Lee, I believe. But I see now they're trying to flip and now make it a university area, yeah, yeah. northern metropolis, because I think they figured out, well, they don't need five billion more flats and they don't need, you know, another tech sector or area out there. And it's mm. now, OK, let's now make it a university. And I actually, to be fair, I don't think that's a bad idea to make it like some sort of university city, university hub. But you're starting from zero in the university. So that university, if they do build out there, is going to have zero reputation. Mm. How many people are going to get? Um, it's said it's just very very slapdash there's no planning there's no thought and there's no um thinking outside the box it's, it's very timorous also yeah. it, it's sort of how is it going to be paid for as well, well it's estimated to cost over a trillion dollars when already our budget deficit is going to be more than double what paul chan originally yes. forecast it to our reserves are down two-fifths now from where they were a couple of yeah. years ago very simple peter they keep the land prices inflated and eventually they're going to force one of their developers to pay those crazy prices right and they're going to sell a whole bunch of land because that's how they've always done it it's when we when we always had surpluses it's because they've sold a whole bunch of land for a crazy price mm. so that's what maybe they'll force one of the developers to do that um the reality is the market can't support these level of uh land prices but the government won't adjust down and, i mean as I, it just baffles me as i keep saying the reserve pricing um but let the market decide that's how hong kong's always been let, as i said let the market decide mm. if the price of land should be a thousand dollars a square foot let it sell for a thousand dollars a square foot why are you inflating at eight thousand dollars a square foot it doesn't make any sense it seems like from what you're both saying we, we've lost our way economically here in, in hong domestically kong. domestically I think, because it's it's a 
many locals, especially, always point blame at China, bad China. Well, I think actually China is very disappointed in this. I mean, we were supposed to be the shining beacon for Taiwan. Well, we know where that's gone. But do you think they are? I think I get the impression it's the other way around. I get the impression that the government here is trying to follow now what China's doing in Absolutely. terms of how it manages its economy. And that's where it's going wrong. Exactly, right. that that's the point. It's with the night vibes Hong Kong. This is all sort of Paul Chan thinking, I know what the market wants. He's sitting in his little office with a bunch of other government advisors who never walk the shop floor except Regina Ip for her old warts and all but I mean she's a good she at least stands her ground I, I respect her for that and um, but nobody else walks the, walks the shop floor and sees what we the plebeians think. Is it Paul Chan is it John Lee and yeah. collectively they I think there's a level of arrogance over there where yes. they're trying to tell people what they what we should be doing as yeah. opposed to let people yeah. tell them what we need Confusion, maybe. Mm. Yeah. and I think that's again where it Listen to that. You keep saying you want to listen to people. Listen to the people. Mm. You know? The consultants have you've overpaid. Because the businesses are telling a different story, aren't they? They are saying that they are. Down, they're not leaving Hong Kong permanently, but they're certainly downsizing. Um, and, and then people, they certainly are having problems with people leaving. And it's nonsense, isn't it? Because if you think about this, low taxes, very favourable business environment in terms mm. of setting up companies. You know. If you live here, it's relatively straightforward opening up a bank account. If you don't, okay, it becomes very, very complicated. But generally, in, in comparison to a lot of other oh, cities out there, also. it's safe. It's, it, it you know, this, yeah. as I said earlier, it's a good lifestyle. I mean, you've got hikes, you've got beaches, you've got city life, you've got a good vibrancy that a lot of cities don't have because it's small. It's very easy to get around. You don't have this in a lot of cities. And all of this is within 10, 15, 20 minutes mm. of you. Um, yet... We've got everything here, and yet, why can't we sell ourselves? Just ask that question. You don't, it should sell itself. Hmm. We yeah. don't need marketing campaigns like yeah. Happy Hong Kong. and uh, some of the top, Yeah, we've got in, some of the yeah. top international schools in the world. Mm. Why are we not, you know, what, where are we struggling? Why are we struggling? Mm. There's a simple answer. Everyone knows the answer, but that's my point. Is get, mm. The government has to start listening to the people, and let Hong Kong just sell itself. Leave it alone. To me, the easiest thing is just leave it alone. Go back yeah, to laissez well, yeah, yeah. mm. It's all well, okay. Yeah. Well, that's the main message from what you've both been yeah, saying. Yeah. Leave well alone. Let's yeah. uh, let yeah. Hong Kong sell itself. Thank you both very much. Great Thank discussion uh, this morning. You heard there Nissin Dialdas, who's Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital, Enzio von Fall, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. <laughs> I'm joined now by Nick Smith, who is Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. Very good morning to you, Nick. Good morning to you. Well, we know what the Bank of Japan has gone and done now. In fact, they've gone and done exactly what they said they were going to do, or what apparently the Nikkei said they were going to do, which was uh, revise their yield curve control um, flexibility. But what do you make of, of where the Bank of Japan is now? I get the impression it's got itself into a bit of a hole here. That's my thoughts entirely. So I was saying it was going to move. Then um, on the morning of, uh, of yesterday, it leaked to the uh, to the Nikkei what it was going to do. And for some reason that uh, escapes all understanding, um, markets acted surprised by that. But what it did was um, instead of actually hiking its yield curve control ceiling, it decided that it would announce that it would broadly ignore it um and so it's saying that the um the rates can go through one uh, percent there isn't a bond market in the world that is more beset by bond vigilantes than japan <laughs> you remember earlier in the year the uh, the shorts were greater than bonds in issue for uh, for some 
issues. And so um, over the last uh, year, the BOJ has made outright purchases of bonds of 126 trillion yen. To put that in context, it's 9% more than the whole government budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were doing that, of course, to try and hold down rates against the, uh, bond vigilantes. But the point is, you can't announce you won't defend your ceiling and expect markets not to try and test the absolute outer limits of your your patients so um that i think is is what we can see will probably be uh, knocking on the door of um of one percent this week we might even reach that uh, level during today um and from there on in there are concerns and i saw you might have seen uh, mohammed al erin talking about um the potential for disorderly exit from her uh, yield curve control uh, he said the history of fixed exchange rates is full of messy exits uh, this can apply to yield curve control as well and I think that's uh, that's probably true. And when, when I looked at what the Bank of Japan actually said what I couldn't find anywhere and this is why I'm a bit confused does it actually have any more uh, targets that, uh, which it would go and intervene it doesn't appear to do so it says it's not one percent because that's now just a reference point but it didn't seem to say anywhere well what is the new ceiling that, that it's prepared to defend so if it doesn't have that ceiling, is is there a yield curve control left anymore, or is that you know like the dead parrots? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it reminds you of the uh, the lovely uh, British comedy about um, a bureaucrat's uh, yes minister. You're talking in riddles. Oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> uh, I mean, bureau- bureaucrats seem to think that it's actually a good thing to uh, to be incomprehensible, uh, and the, the uh, markets hate this more than anything else. But yes, the uh, the. Um, release that came out of the BOJ was um, a, a fantastic piece of, of what they call in Japanese uh, kasumigaseki bungaku um, bureaucratic, lit- <laughs> bureaucratic literature um, it doesn't actually say something it doesn't say anything but it says it beautifully <laughs> and in the meantime then the Bank of Japan is, is in now in the worst of all worlds isn't it because it was under pressure to go and remove the yield co- control policy to, to stem the decline in the yen so it's made a sort of move a a minorish move and the yen's gone down even further now so this is not surely the outcome that it wanted no, I mean, for one, you couldn't make a bigger uh, come on to um, to the bond vigilantes than it's just done. Obviously, mm. the uh, the currency markets are um, uh, are in uh, flux at the moment, um, so the yen's weakened somewhat after uh, after this. All of this is, of course, waterboarding the Japanese consumer, um, and the result of that is tumbling support for the government. Uh, and you might say, on the one hand, um, yeah, it's not the BOJ's job to uh, to bail out government. No. But the, the the polls are telling us just the uh, the size of pain from um, from the um, cost of living crisis in in Japan, and so um, it seems clear to me that the. Uh, the BOJ is going to probably have to move again in its next meeting, which is on the uh, the 19th of December. It, it does seem, though, doesn't it? Although, as you say, the BOJ's job is not to support the government. At the same time, the BOJ and the government seem to have quite divergent policies now. The, the BOJ has sacrificed the yen, whereas the, 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 the government wants to support it, doesn't want to see it go much lower than this. 
Yeah, I mean, I do think that um, foreigners do overestimate the importance of the yen. But uh, I think um, the thing to bear in mind is just the uh, the pain being felt by Japanese uh, consumers with uh, inflation well above the uh, uh, the uh, wage increases. I mean, obviously, tightness of the the labour market is is helping wage increases, but uh, the pain they're feeling at the moment is uh, is huge. And to have on the one side the government trying to give huge subsidies to uh, to try and bring down prices at the same time that the uh, the boj is um is trying to raise prices and in its uh, forecast it's saying um we think that um inflation will be down below two uh, percent uh <laughs> not next year but the uh, the year after and this gives us a reason for continuing with what we're doing but having just uh raised their forecast for for next fiscal year by 0.9 percentage points i think one could reasonably say look you've just proved that you couldn't hit a barn door with a shovel with your <laughs> forecasting so trying to forecast the following uh, fiscal year is a bit like throwing snowballs at the moon <laughs> and i had to laugh out loud when i saw that revision as you say a huge revision in their inflation forecast they said in their statement this increase should be supported by a virtuous cycle of rising prices and wages you almost fall off your chair don't you when you think um, do they really believe that it's certainly not what's happened so far uh, sure i mean obviously w- the uh, wage increases that came through in the uh, the shunto the um, the spring wage negotiations is uh, the largest japan seen in uh, in decades uh, my belief is that it will uh, be followed by uh, large wage increases in in spring next year whether for me or not is uh, a different case but um, uh, but i do think we're um, it's simple demographics pushing things in the uh, the right direction but uh, i think the the uh, japan's had all the help it can uh, really uh, take from the BOJ at the moment. So what does this mean for markets then? Um, we're seeing some big moves in Japanese government bonds. We're seeing big moves in the yen. Uh, the, the stock market rallied after this news. We're also seeing obviously big moves in the, the US Treasury bond market as well. And Japanese investors own um, a lot of overseas debt, trillions of dollars of overseas debt. How do you put this all together in terms of what, what's going to happen to the markets other than presumably we're going to see a lot of volatility? I think volatility is a uh, a given at the moment. Um, I mean, I think uh, there are some people uh, saying that um, that it still makes sense to leave uh, money in the uh, the U.S. Treasury market. Uh, those people are ignoring the fact that um, hedging costs, uh, three month hedging costs, are not much short of six uh, percent at the moment, which wipes out um, all of your um, your yield and change. Um, I think we'll see a certain amount of, of problems with the um, uh, the yen carry trade globally, which uh, could cause some real problems, but particularly ructions in um, in Europe. Uh, for Japan, the big beneficiaries of, uh, of rising rates are the um, are the banks. Um, generally, the market's looking uh, looking better. It hasn't been a bad um, earnings season, um, but. Uh, um, uh, but overall, I think uh, um, Japan was, is perfectly happy uh, for the uh, the stock market to sit on uh, uh, low rates and uh, low yield for the time being. So is there a risk that Japanese investors, pension funds and the like uh, could repatriate from overseas bond markets back into Japanese government bonds, assuming, of course, they can find any Japanese government bonds to buy these days? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um 
I think the um, the idea of repatriation, the end of the uh, the yen carry trade, is a, a, a real point. Um, China's drawing down um, U.S. bonds. Japan's likely to uh, to do the same thing. Uh, where would the money go? Will um, I know there are people saying, well, um, banks will buy um, Japanese bonds if the 10-year the gets over 1%, uh, but with inflation of, uh, of no, around uh, around 4 depending on which number you look at, um, then you've got significantly negative real um, real rates. And to me, the uh, the logical place is to, uh, to go for the stock market, which is paying out a pretty fat, juicy dividend at the moment. Mm. Now, on a slightly different, different topic, but, but related with all this money um, being cheaper than free, the government's encouraging um, M&A activ- activism, isn't it? Uh, in your report, you call it the urge to merge. What's happening there? Well, I think the, um, there are a couple of things going on here. The, uh, the government is, rather than trying to raise the drawbridge against um, foreign activists, it's, it's been uh, very much encouraging them recently. And uh, a couple of um, government departments, the um, Financial Services, Services Agency and the, uh, the Trade Ministry, have both been putting together uh, guidelines for, um, for M&A that they say the intent is to, uh, to make it uh, easier, including for, uh, for hostile M&A. And so we look at um, the um, investment banking fees for uh, for Japan having overtaken uh, China for the uh, the first time since uh, 1999. Um, part of that is is the the trade's being done at unwinding cross shareholdings, but it's also MA is uh, in the first half of the year was um, was equivalent to what it had been in whole years in um, in recent years. So the whole M um, and A story is picking up, and of course money is substantially cheaper than free, which makes it easier. So it's tempting to look at the um, the barbarians at the gate um, stories of the um, of the 1980s um, and say, well, uh, Japan desperately needs uh, mergers. It's um, it's uh, industries are generally a, a sort of patchwork quilt of, of cottage industries. Uh, and in order to get um, int- um margins up they uh, they clearly get need to get um get a few um shotgun marriages in um in corporate japan mm. uh, and so we've we've had a few we've got a lot more to uh, to go i mean an interesting area is of course the uh, the automakers um the us has got well, only three automakers that anyone can remember, but six, whereas uh, Japan's got 10, and, uh, and Toyota owns stakes in in, um, in six of them. Um, <laughs> and I do think that the, there's an element of uh, what the um, the samurai used to say about the peasant farmers in Japan is ikasazu, kurosazu, don't, live the, don't let them live, don't let them die. And there's an element of this in the, uh, the stakes that uh, Toyota's got in that uh, it prevents them being bought out by somebody else, but it refuses to her uh, to buy them either which keeps them on um on the verge of uh, of death i think in a uh, an auto market that's getting uh, globally very very much more competitive i remember when i moved out to japan at the end of 1989 and, and i used to trade japanese warrants and, and convertible bonds in london before that these japanese companies were among the biggest in the world they were they were just enormous companies um which isn't the case anymore so i presume there's definitely room to to have much bigger Japanese companies again, going back to where we were um, in the 1990s, maybe. 
That makes sense. I mean, in 1989, Japan accounted for 18 of the top 25 companies in the world, uh, whereas there's uh, none in the top 25 now and only uh, one in the top 30. Um, And so... Japanese companies can be immensely tribal, um, and uh, joining them together um, hasn't proved that easy. The the biggest problem, of uh, of course, is that uh, M and A makes money by hair uh, by cutting people, um, and Japan had. Uh, was very frightened of uh, of unemployment after the bubble burst, but now it's got a uh, an extreme labour shortage. Um, that should be much easier. I mean, just you don't have to fire anybody. It's got a um, a bulge on the population pyramid right around uh, retirement age. Retirement age. So just um, holding back from um, from hiring uh, allows you to uh, to shrink your um, your uh, number of employees. Nick, it's always very fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much for coming onto the show this morning. That's Nick Smith, who's Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show on Fed Day by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Hao Hong, Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group. And with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.